Welcome to you guys who call City Church home. We're glad that y'all are with us. For you guys who are joining us for the first time, I see some new faces, or if you're joining us by podcast or app, we want to say welcome to you. My name is Sean Little. I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City Church. Uh, Thanks again for being with us. Now, in the coming weeks, we are going to begin a class, uh, which we're calling City Culture. City Culture will be an exploration uh, of our values. There are seven of them. Uh, Here are values. The gospel, excellence, authenticity, bias for action, cultural engagement, intellectual integrity, and creativity. That's sort of the the ebb and flow of, of who we are as a church. City culture, the class, will be for anyone. It will be for those of you who call City Church home. It will be for to City Church, and it will be for folks who are just exploring Christianity. We have a lot of folks who are around now who weren't around at our founding and the creation of these values, including myself. Uh, so we want to invite y'all into a class to kind of teach and tell who we are, why we are, um, and we hope that you will come to it and invite your friends. Uh, and again, the why of that class, why we're having that class, uh, is also to get folks connected with the life of the church, cleverly titled by moi as City Life. Huh? You guys like that? Uh, City Life, getting folks connected to either service opportunities, whether that's being part of the setup and teardown team, as long as we're at the center, or children's ministry, part of our tech team, other opportunities, and also to get folks involved in a community group, whether that's you want to lead one or join one. That's the why of City Culture as well. Um, so yeah, it'll be a place where you can come, learn about us, find out about next steps, about getting involved in the church, City Culture. We hope you guys all will come to that. City Culture is essentially a synopsis. It's going to be one week, probably the same Sunday every month, uh, of our culture, who we are, and what our culture is, a group of people and their peculiarities, whether you're talking about us or anyone else. A culture is a group of people and their peculiarities. There are micro-cultures like City Church or Hipsters or third wave coffee nerds, or hip hop heads, or yogis. Those are all micro cultures. And then there are macro cultures, like humans. That wasn't a joke. I told you I'm bad at calculated jokes, but I don't even know when I'm being funny. There really are macro cultures like human beings. And if we think about humanity as a culture, a group of people and their peculiarities, we can understand that generally all humans have inherent inclinations. All humans have inherent inclinations. So humans have an inherent inclination towards belonging. We see that throughout history and family and friendship and romantic relationships. Simultaneously, humans have an inherent inclination towards division. And that's really odd to me. But we see this throughout history and all of the isms, right? Classism and racism, sexism, nationalism, and ultimately in war. All humans also have another inclination, which we're going to consider this morning. The inclination, the term for it is well known. And my concern is that it's familiarity. Once I say the word which is why I'm taking a minute to get to the word, I'm concerned that our familiarity with it will make it fall on deaf ears. 
So, in considering this inclination, we'll discover the relationship between us as Americans in Evansville today and them as Israelites in Egypt thousands of years ago. Again, considering the culture of all humanity, whether it's us or it's them. So the title of my sermon this morning, and don't glaze over when I say the word, is American Idols. And the scripture that we're going to be considering primarily is Exodus 32. So if you have a Bible with you, which I know many of y'all do, and if you don't, then you have to be a visitor. So again, welcome. Uh, I would ask that you would go to Exodus 32. And just a heads up, Exodus is the second book in your Bible. Uh, Again, we'll be in chapter 32. We're considering this text because in it, we're going to find one of the primary classic examples of idolatry in Israel's history. Through the text, I'm going to point out five characteristics of an idol so that if there are idols in our lives, we'll be able to identify them and even think about a proper response to those idols. But again, just because the word idol is out there, don't glaze over. So I think it's important to define my term. I think language is really, really important. Uh, And many of us can have many different meanings by any one word we say. So here's how I want us to think about an idol. Okay, an idol can be anything, physical or psychological, that we trust to provide security, status, substance, or ultimately salvation, rescue. So an idol is a lesser God. Again, quickly, an idol can be anything physical, you can hold it in your hand, or psychological, you can't hold it in your hand. It's just an idea that we trust to provide security, status, substance, or ultimately salvation. An idol is a lesser God. So if you need to write that down, we can leave it up for a second. I'm not really going to use that definition uh, as I go through the rest of the sermon. I'm not going to explain the definition, but that is what I'm talking about. So I don't want you all thinking about just little Buddha statues or gold, gold cows or anything. Think along uh, idols along these lines. So before we proceed, since it's a familiar idea uh, and it can often be a very challenging idea, I want to pray. Will you all pray with me? Thank you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for a new day, uh, for the privilege uh, to have the freedom to get together in a church, uh, to consider your scripture, uh, your word, to sing songs of praise to you, to thank you, to acknowledge you, uh, to join with fellow believers and folks who do not believe, uh, to consider who you are and what that means in our life. Uh, Lord, I know that a common trait in the culture of humanity Uh, is to find things, whether they're physical or psychological, and entrust ourselves to them. Uh, So this morning, I pray that you will uh, soften my heart, uh, open my ears and my eyes, even as I preach, uh, to consider the idols that are in my life. Um, I'm not assuming and I'm not saying that any of us have them, but I want us all, myself first, to be open to that. Uh, ultimately, Lord, not so that we can feel bad or feel wrong or leave here with a, with a list of things to do. Uh, but, Lord, we want to see what idols are and identify them in our lives so that we can ultimately see your offer, uh, which is the fulfillment of everything we look to when we look at idols. Um, we know that you give us security. We know that you give us substance and status, and ultimately you give us salvation. So we want to see that this morning. Lord, help me. We don't just want to hear my words. We want to hear yours. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
So this portion of scripture here in Exodus 32 is shortly after Israel has been led out of captivity, bondage, slavery in Egypt. And again, I know this is a familiar account, but this happened miraculously. The scripture says that the Red Sea was stacked up like walls. I mean, sometimes it'll rain, sheets of rain, but that stuff is still liquid. The Red Sea was stacked up like walls. God has summoned Israel's leader, an unlikely man by the name of Moses, to a mountaintop meeting. He wants to talk to him. And anytime you talk to God, you've got to climb a mountain as well, right? So Moses had to. He climbs a mountain, and he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. So I want to draw our attention to what is going on in the Israelite camp in the wilderness in Moses' absence. What's going on with the people? So we're going to look at Exodus 32, verse 1 through the beginning of verse 4. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to him, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. So, this portion of scripture is where we're going to find three of those five characteristics of an idol. Which again, can be physical or psychological. First, notice that idols emerge from our fears. Do you see that? Moses is one of Israel's only visible signs of God's presence with them. Not the only one, but one of the only ones. They're also flanked by a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. But certainly Moses is one of the prominent examples of God's presence with them. Moses has been absent 40 days and 40 nights. And in his absence, the Israelites grew uncertain and they grew fearful. And when you're in a desert, Feeling alone and afraid, it's helpful, it's reassuring to be able to reach out and touch something. Or reach out and see something to ease your mind. Has anyone ever seen the National Geographic show, uh, Doomsday Preppers? Yeah, that show is a trip. Here's the description of Doomsday Preppers. Doomsday Preppers explores the lives of other or otherwise ordinary Americans who are preparing for the end of the world as we know it. Unique in their beliefs, motivations, and strategies, preppers will go to whatever lengths they can to make sure they're prepared for any of life's uncertainties. Now, for the Doomsday Preppers in the room, I am not poking fun at you. I'm really not. For those joining us by podcast, I'm not making fun of you. I'm not criticizing you. And I'm sure there could be an argument made that preparing for a rainy day is a wise thing to do. In fact, I flirted with that idea myself. In 1999, I was listening to an album by Most Def. And you guys might be familiar uh, with Most Def. He's a rapper turned actor. He's in the films Italian Job, the black guy in Italian Job. Y'all know him? Or uh, Life of Crime more recently. So most deaf album is called Black on Both Sides. And he has a song on that album called New World Water. I'm 19 years, or I'm 
I'm 15 years old. It's 1999. Driving around, listening to this car. And at some point, he says, forget a bank. I need a 20-year water tank. Forget a bank. I need a 20-year water tank. And that blew my mind. Ten years later, I get married to my wife. You can ask her. This is a true story. We live in the third third floor remodel of an old Victorian home in Cincinnati. So after you go up these three long flights of steps, often with groceries in your hand, you get to our palace. 500 square foot apartment, seven foot ceilings. The bedroom was bigger than the living room. It was just a small, tiny place. We had two closets. They were kind of like faux closets. They weren't really closets. And I was trying to convince Aaron to give me one of the closets to stockpile water. Forget a bank. I need a 20-year water tank. And I had it all figured out. I said, we'll buy one 24-pack of water per week, and we'll just put it in this closet. It didn't happen. She didn't let me do it. Uh, But the idea has never gotten away from me. In fact, when we purchased our first home, which we recently sold, again, I was like, yo, we got a garage now. Let's stockpile water in our garage. It makes so much sense. Again, she didn't let me. But now that we're living downtown, I'm looking into rain water jugs, you know, where you connect it to your, uh, what is that called? Yeah, your downspout or your gutters. Thank you. Uh, so I'm looking into those because, again, I'm like, well, that doesn't, that's, I don't have to buy it. I can just get it when it rains, and I'll put it into smaller containers and put some Clorox in it and put it in the basement. Here is my point. We see how idols emerge from our fears. I mean, have you ever gone without water? Honestly, have you gone without water? I went to Mexico, and if you drink the public water in Mexico, you get the Mexican monster. You can Google that if you need to know what it is. I've been to Europe a couple times, and you'll be out kind of running around the city, checking everything out. And if you sit down, they don't serve you table water. So you're just parched, and you're thirsty, and you want to drink a water, but you have to buy the water, and you've got to ask with no bubbles. And the water is more expensive than beer, but you drink it real fast because you're parched, and then you've got to buy another one. Have you ever? Okay. You're kind of seeing what happens when our fears get the best of us. I'm kind of the materialization of an idol happening. Um, so before you say, this guy's crazy, I'm, I'm just giving you an example in my life. Because by the way, I did the math. And if we would have been collecting water bottles since we got married, we would have 8,112 bottles of water. That's 338 cases of water. We're coming up on our seventh move. And I really, in in the logic and the reason of my mind, I'm like, that's a good idea to stockpile water. So again, before you say that I'm crazy, I want to say that anything can become an idol. And idols emerge from our fears. So maybe you've been in a relationship where you didn't feel safe. And whatever reason, you didn't feel safe. So your response is that you want to make sure that you always feel safe. So have you grown disconnected or hard? Have you put walls up to make sure that you're never vulnerable and never exposed? Emotional safety can become an idol. Maybe you grew up in a home where money was tight. And so in response to that, you want to make sure that you are never lacking. Your family is never lacking, whether that's in money or material. And if you get uncomfortably honest with yourself, maybe you would even admit that you are greedy. See, money or material can become an idol. I'm not saying that it is. It can become when you trust it, like I think to trust water for security or status 
substance, or salvation. Anything can become an idol. Here's the second characteristic. You'll notice that idols emerge from the culture in which someone lives. And I believe we'll begin to see the relationship between us and them, between Americans in Evansville today and Israelites in Egypt thousands of years ago. Israel's forefather was a man named Abraham. Abraham was called by God to follow him out of an idolatrous culture into a promised land. Abraham's experience mirrored that of Israel's when they were in bondage for 400 years. They were both saturated in a pagan culture. So during Israel's 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians, they were immersed in that culture with pagan practices, whether those were social, political, economic, or religious. They were immersed. They were saturated in paganism, which their religious pagan practice often included the use of a calf or a bull statue, Again, part of that worship culture of the ancient Near East. So when the Israelites gave their gold, melted it down, and made a calf, they were mirroring what they saw in their culture. Does that make sense? Idols emerge from the culture in which someone lives. And I wonder if you can think of anything in our American culture that could be embraced. We take a hold of it. Or we esteem it, we push it up, and we worship it. That could become an idol. Again, giving us a sense of security, status, substance, or ultimately salvation. And trusting idols for those things. Maybe it's a religious idol. Just like the Egyptians would have used for worship. I mean, religious idols can exist as well. That's fundamentally what the gold calf is. And a religious idol could be attending church, reading the Bible, having a daily quiet time, fasting and praying, tithing, serving the poor. The list goes on. Again, those things can be inherently good, but they can also become an idol. Because as I look away from God himself, the very source of my security and my status, my substance and my salvation, and I look to my lesser God of religion and any of those entities that are religious practices, what they tell me is that they can provide me a path to righteousness, a path to self-righteousness that is apart from God himself. And my religion, my religious practice, if it becomes an idol can distinguish me from other people. And I may know this in a way that other people don't. Uh, As a preacher, right, that's my my job. That's what I get paid to do. It's been such a trip. I went to buy a used car this week. Uh, And I offered the guy less than what he was asking. And he railed me. He said, you're a minister. How are you going to ask for, I said, man, I'm a a person trying to get a good deal. It doesn't matter that I'm a preacher. So our religious practice can set us apart from other people, and we can look to that as an idol, as if it will make us self-righteous. The works of our hands, even if they are religious works, can make me proud. They provide the illusion of self-righteousness, of security, of status before God. And they provide a substance of holiness Ultimately, they provide the lie of salvation by our own 
means. So religious practices can become idols as well. As I look away from God and look to my lesser God of religion. Now, the third characteristic of an idol is that idols demand illegitimate sacrifice. Idols demand illegitimate sacrifice. You guys may be familiar with the story. I assume some of you are. But Israel is in bondage to Egypt. They're in slavery to Egypt for 400 years. And God gets a hold of this fellow who's kind of a smart mouth, uh, Moses. And he says, I want you to lead my people, Israel, out of Egyptian slavery. And he's like, you got the wrong guy, man. But God kind of goes back and forth with Moses. Finally, Moses musters courage. And he gets before Pharaoh and he says, God says, let my people go. And you guys know the other part of that because of Jeff's sermons. But essentially, let my people go. Pharaoh says, nah, I'm good. I'm cool. They go back and forth, back and forth. And finally, Moses has to go before Pharaoh and say, hey, if you don't let my people go, God is going to send plagues upon you. So he does that plague after plague, and it kind of works. It kind of musters a different response from Pharaoh, but then he hardens his heart. And in anticipation of the 10th plague that God sent on Egypt, we read in Exodus 11, 1 through 3, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So, speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. So, following the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, the Egyptians are in absolute disarray. Exodus 12, 35 and 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. They listened to what he said, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked for. Thus, the Israelites plundered Egypt, the Egyptians. The gold earrings that the wives, sons, and daughters were wearing were some of the riches God gave Israel before they left Egypt. The gold could have been used to build the tabernacle, which God would soon be asking of them, instructing them to do, but instead they willingly sacrificed the blessing and the gift that God had given them in the jewelry for the sake of their idol. Years ago, a dear friend of mine called me in tears. I mean, my, my best friend. He pulled off on the side of the road of the highway as he was driving in to work. He's just completely sobbing. He's going downtown to work. Through his sobbing, he shared with me about the culture of conformity that existed at his corporation. He was at his wit's end. He felt like he was suffocating and like he was dying. I mean, he had a panic attack. So over the next few weeks, we dreamed about him opening up his own business. He wanted to open up a barber shop. It was a great idea. He'd have made a killing. But he discussed it with his wife. He got his finances in order. He figured out how he could cash in his 401k. And he finally submits his resignation after being with this company for five, six years. He was called into his supervisor's office that afternoon. They sat him down. And the dude was able to talk him out of his resignation. 
His supervisor played on the financial insecurity of going into business for yourself. The financial risk associated with that decision. And my friend decided not to resign. Instead, he relocated in the company, did something else. And to this day, he hasn't opened up the barbershop. And I'm not throwing shade at him. I'm not styling on my friend. uh, But I saw something in this. And again, it's an illegitimate sacrifice that he made of his conviction for comfort. He sacrificed his conviction to be comfortable. And maybe you've done something similar. For example, maybe you've kept your mouth shut when you knew you should say something. But the comfort of someone else's opinion of you mattered more than your own conviction. The approval of people can very quickly become an idol. It requires an illegitimate sacrifice of your convictions. Have you made an illegitimate sacrifice lately? Possibly sacrificing your convictions uh, for comfort. Here's the fourth characteristic of an idol. And we'll see this picking up in the latter part of verse 4. So go back to where you were in Exodus 32, verse 4. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Does this seem weird to anyone else? The Israelites just illegitimately sacrificed, again, those gifts and the blessings that God gave them to fashion an idol, which arose from the culture that they lived in, prompted by their fear due to Moses' absence. So they have violated at least the first and the second commandment, which God gave them directly. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So they do that. They oppose those commandments, and then... The next day, Aaron says, all right, I've got to build up this little altar. I know that I just fashioned the idol. But the appropriate response to our sin is to have a celebration, to have a religious festival towards the Lord, praising him, worshiping him, making sacrifices unto him. It doesn't make any sense. It's a contradiction. And I wonder how many of us have consciously or unconsciously chosen the security, the status the substance, or even the salvation of an idol over our reason, our logic to worship God, to give him all of our attention. And if you have, you would not be the first. So don't feel isolated or insulated by yourself. If you're like, man, some of this hits home. You wouldn't be the first. There's a well-known account in the New Testament of a young man's interaction with Jesus. He's referred to as the rich young ruler. This young man, of his own will, pursues Jesus. He finds him, he discovers him, and he approaches him to ask, What must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler asks Jesus. So Jesus, knowing the priority and the position 
of money and material possessions in the heart of the rich young ruler responds this way. Go, sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor. Luke 18, 23, 25 accounts for his response. When he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In this interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler, the lesser God of wealth, money, and material was the idol of the rich young ruler. Therefore, he was unable to believe and to embrace God himself in Jesus and the eternal life that Jesus had to offer, which is the fulfillment of the security, the status, the substance, and the salvation that we are looking for when we reach out to smaller gods, lesser gods, and idols. And that eternal life is what Jesus desires to give to all men. Now, as a side note, I think this is an important distinction to make. Uh, Because I get in conversations with people who are young, who are old, who are wealthy, who are not. This is the side note. This interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Jesus is not saying that you inherit eternal life through the pursuit of poverty. It's a descriptive, not a prescriptive example. He's not saying that. Jesus dealt with men and women in the scripture individually, just like he does today. So what Jesus is attempting to do here is to dethrone this specific idol in the heart of this specific man, this lesser God of money and material, which the young man clung to as his idol. And Jesus was trying to dethrone that idol from this young man's heart so that the young man would be able to trust Jesus to be his source of security and status, substance, and ultimately salvation instead of trusting his idol, which was wealth. For those of you who do not believe in Jesus as Savior and Messiah, I wonder if Jesus isn't trying to do the same thing for you right now. Dethrone the lesser God the idol that you cling to, which is keeping you from believing in him and receiving the gift of eternal life. And for those of you, for those of us who do believe in Jesus and already have the gift of eternal life, I wonder if he's not challenging us in the same way to let go of an idol that is keeping us from receiving more of the abundant life that he has for us. Jesus often has the same exact invitation of more, whether you believe in him or you don't believe in him. And our lesser gods, our idols, keep us from accepting Jesus' invitation, whether that's for the gift of eternal life or for the gift of more of his abundant life. So before you walk away from him like the rich young ruler did, please just consider that. Will you let go of your idols, if you have them, and you may not, But will you let go of them to take up his offer of the gift of eternal life or to take up his offer of more of abundant life? Jesus himself is God, the capital G God, not the lowercase God, the lesser God. And only he can give us the fulfillment that we're looking for when we accept or embrace 
and idol, which again could be physical or psychological. So while all of this is happening, God decides to tell Moses about what's going on down the mountain at the camp in the wilderness. So Moses comes down the mountain. I can't imagine that he strolled. Maybe he ran. I don't know if you can run in flip-flops in a dress. But he goes down the mountain quickly. Uh, and he's livid. He's completely a word church. So he's upset. Uh, he's upset. So find in verse 21, and we'll pick up how uh, Moses responds after God told him about what is going on. So Exodus 32, verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to him, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, listen to this. Let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Now, here is the humorous part. We're going to see something deeply humorous and deeply human. Here's the humorous part. What a terrible, terrible lie. That is just a bad lie. I used to be, I mean, when I was young, uh, I used to be a professional liar. To my mom, to my girlfriend, to my brother, to my dad. Like, I was on it, boy. Uh, but something has happened in my experience of Jesus and the eternal life that he gives, the abundant life that he gives. And I'm not saying I never lie, and that's kind of a suspicious thing to hear from a preacher, but I am such a terrible liar. Just the, the weight of my life. You can tell it on my face. Ask my wife if I'm lying. Oh, I'm just I'm a, a terrible, terrible liar. So this, again, it's humorous, but it's also deeply human. It's a terrible, terrible lie. This is that, well, what had happened was moment, right? Moses confronts Aaron, and he's like, dude, what did, what did you do? And he's like, well, I mean, oh, what had happened? Well, okay, I was over here, and I was chilling. I already had the fire going because we're, we're in the wilderness, right? So it was cold out here. And they came up to me, and I was like, yo, and they were like, hey. And I said, sure, and why not? And then the next thing I know, this calf crawls out of the fire, that's the what had happened was moment. And Moses is just like, word. <laughs> After all we've been through, that's to my face in front of these people. You're just going to lie to me. And so we see that this lying, even from a very holy man, a, a man who was used in the, in the liberation and the leadership of God's people out of bondage from Egyptian slavery, we see that this man is lying. Lying is deeply, deeply human. And as I read this and studied and considered, I was reminded of the first lie that was confronted. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. See the fifth characteristic 
of an idol is that idols are always surrounded by rationalization. Idols are always surrounded by rationalization. Adam tried to pass the buck of his responsibility, rationalizing away his sin to put it on Eve. This woman that you gave me, she made me do it. She's the one at fault. And Aaron, from the lineage of Adam, tried to pass the buck of his responsibility, rationalizing his sin and placing it on the Israelites. The what had happened was explanation, avoiding the unavoidable reality that we just read in verse 4. Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Yet he lied about it. It just crawled up out of this fire. I tossed it in. This is what happened. Received it with his very hands. Used a tool. Labor over it. Fashioned it. And then just lies directly to Moses' face passing the buck. And if we're honest, we do the same thing, don't we? When the cost of our sin or our error is too much, we buck our responsibility. I'm trying to think of examples right now of myself. I'm sure if you hung out with me long enough, you would see me do it. But we do the same thing. When the cost of our accountability is too much, we just buck the responsibility. And see, this is why Scripture says of Jesus, calls Jesus the last Adam and the second man. Unlike Adam and unlike Aaron and unlike you, And unlike me, Jesus never tried to pass the buck of his responsibility and place it on anyone else. He never tried to do that. In fact, Jesus had no metaphorical buck to pass. He wasn't responsible for any sin. He wasn't responsible for any wrongdoing. Yet and still, when I talked about this last week, and I've mentioned it in other sermons, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, although Jesus didn't try to buck his responsibility for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was Jesus' fate, even though he fully accepted All of his responsibility. Never tried to pass the buck. And even took on our irresponsibility. Our lies. Our falsehood. Our sin. Our shortcoming. The lie manipulation of Adam. The lie and manipulation of Aaron. Our lies. Our manipulation. See, the fundamental difference between a lesser God, which is an idol, and God himself, is that idols are are unable to provide you any lasting security, status, substance, and ultimately salvation. We entrust ourselves to them, and they may be able to provide us an illusion of those things for a day, for a moment, to get us out of a sticky situation, for a week, for a month, for a year, for a lifetime. We can build our lives on these idols and think that we have these things, but they are not lasting Only the eternal God can offer you all of those things eternally. Only an eternal God can offer you eternal security, eternal status, 
eternal substance and eternal salvation. And so this morning, that God, Jesus, through his word, is inviting everyone who has not believed in him as their savior, as their Messiah, to let go of their lesser gods, whether physical or psychological, to embrace the eternal life that only he can offer. And that God, Jesus, through his word, is inviting everyone who has believed in him as their Savior and their Messiah to let go of their lesser gods, physical or psychological, to embrace more of the abundant life that he desires for us, whether an American in Evansville today or an Israelite in Egypt thousands of years ago, we are all descendants of the first Adam, the first man. But Jesus, the last Adam, the second man, through the power of his life, his perfect life, his death, his unjust death, his resurrection, his ascension, his soon coming return, is inviting us into eternal life and abundant life and inviting us into eternal and abundant security and status, substance, and salvation. Don't allow the lesser gods, our idols, they can exist in a myriad of forms. And and the point of this sermon is not to criticize you for those things, not to beat you up for those things. That's not what God desires to do. God punished his son. He was pleased to do so to liberate us from the lie that lesser gods satisfy. Only capital G, God, Jesus, satisfies our longings, satisfies our desires, and gives us the eternal life that we are so desperately seeking for. Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord, I am so thankful that even after you pursued me uh, to a point of believing in you, And even after you gave me the gift of eternal life, you have continued to pursue me in all of my humanity. You haven't expected or required perfection from me in a way that is untrue to my human experience. You call for holiness, but at the same time you allow for holiness. You give that gift. You give that opportunity, God. But even after receiving the gift of eternal life, you have continued to pursue me. Offering me more and more of the abundant life that you desire to give us eternally. God, we cannot exhaust your offer. Uh, Please help me first, uh, City Church, the city of Evansville, to identify if there are things in our life that are keeping us from accepting the more of what you want to give us. God, we don't want to miss out on the real God because of the lesser gods and how easy it is to look to things that are right in front of us, whether physical or psychological, that provide an immediate answer to our problems, answer to our concerns. God, but we are not finite creatures. Uh, We are eternal creatures, and we cannot be satisfied by finite things. We can only be satisfied by you. Lord God, we want to be satisfied by you. We thank you that you have made that available to us in your son Jesus, uh, who we worship and we pray in his name. Amen.